Welcome back to the Arbitration Station, episode three. <laughs> it's always a moment of silence because I'm not sure, and you screwed that up a few times before. But it, <laughs> it is, yeah, this is episode three of this very unique arbitration podcast. Yes, I mean we're do, we do it in such piecemeal fashion that we have trouble keeping track of what's happening. But um, we're on episode three. I'm in Stockholm at my office as usual. Joel, where are you sitting at the moment? I'm in the Findlay Library at the Lautepark Center in, in Cambridge, which is normally the place where they have lectures. There's a lot of distinguished people come to the Lautepark Center to give lectures every week, more or less. But now it was empty, so I just jumped here in order to not disturb the other much more senior researchers that I share a workspace with. I went to the first time to Cambridge last week and visited Joel and we recorded some material there, but I have to say I was floored by the beauty and history and architecture and extreme snobbery that uh, that is Cambridge. You you mentioned Harry Potter, I think, six times in six two hours? Six or seven, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was uh, pretty fantastic. You're very fortunate to be there. It's nice, it's really nice. Did you see, by the way, on a completely different note that our favorite arbitration TV show the Good Wife has a spin-off. No. There is now something called The Good Fight. Yeah, The Good Fight. Oh, um, and what's that about? It's a few of the characters, the classic spin-off, a few of the characters from The Good Wife, not the actual Good Wife. Juliana Margulies. Yeah, exactly. Alicia, I was going to say Flockhart, but that's Callista Flockhart. That's another <laughs> lawyer, right? <laughs> exactly. Alicia, Alicia Florick is her name in the TV show. Oh, okay. She, she's not in it, but her senior partner and some other people are now working for another firm. So that's a good fight. They are no longer representing primarily corporations, but rather the weaker people of of the world. So they and, get more dramatic storylines. Yes. Mm -hmm. And also I think it took they might is either the first or the second episode where arbitration yet again shows up. Oh, they, well. have a, they have a a problem with arbitration in the in the writing writing room of uh, of the good fight slash the good wife. So it's a, it's a labor arbitration or a, a, it's a, an employee is accused of stealing from his store. He works in a fancy sneaker shop and it turns out that his contract has a, a mandatory arbitration clause. Mm -hmm. so, they, so they have to defend him in arbitration and in, in the arbitration they address the arbitrator as Mr. Arbiter, which is also funny for, <laughs> for arbitration. But of course it turns out arbitration, you know, it's a mandatory private proceeding and it's done in like five seconds because Mr. Arbiter has so many cases so he doesn't even listen to the arguments. He just say, okay, oh no, sorry, the, uh, the employer wins, bye-bye, next case. Oh. <laughs> and there's no appeal in arbitration, did you know that? So it's binding and you can't do anything about it. So the storyline instead is that they have to, uh, they, they rephrase the claim as a tort claim and then they can go to court instead. So they get out of the arbitration clause in the contract. But So arbitration is basically the first five minutes of the episode showing that uh, the evil employer prefers to go to Mr. Arbiter, right. but instead they, they find a way to go to court to get a, a fair trial. How exciting. I feel like that's an American, uh, the default American presumption about arbitration is that it's only you know, your shrink wrap terms for iTunes. That's what arbitration is to a lot of people. 
Yeah, um, but and, and I think this this needs to be put in perspective though, because it's basically only in America. I'm guessing maybe in a few other places, but right. I know for in Europe for a fact. I mean, you can't really bind consumers or employees to binding arbitration because we have consumer protection laws preventing that. So this is a discussion that exists primarily in the United States. Right. We have company protection laws and company tax benefits and all of the above. Yeah. American exceptionalism, favorite topic of the arbitration <laughs> section. But that, that's not really what we're talking about today. We have some other well, we, we're going to the United States, actually. So we, we will be talking a little bit about the U.S. and and uh, the particularities of, of one place in particular in, in Miami. We had originally planned to go to, to Costa Rica. Yes. I think we touched that, but that's unfortunately that won't work out. No, we had Herman Duarte. We interviewed him and um, his firm called Etch Duarte or H, uh, H. Duarte Lex, um, and we interviewed him. We had a really great interview. He's doing some great stuff down in Costa Rica, including a lot of constitutional cases before um, some Central uh, American Supreme Court about uh, the legalization of marriage equality. Um, however, there was a lot of technical issues, so we had to fly an hour north uh, to Miami to interview um, a friend of yours. Quinn, yeah, Quinn Smith who, uh, who uh, is a very interesting person working for a very interesting firm. I think he's even the managing partner for that uh, boutique firm, uh, G-S-T-L-L-P, that does a lot of arbitration work, uh, in particular investment treaty work, and in particular representing states. I don't know if he would agree with that characterization, but that's how I know him, that they they do a lot of, of high, uh, high value and, and very publicized investment treaty cases on behalf of a few states. So that's why I wanted to talk to him, but that's not really uh, what we talk about, as will be evident. He has a broader perspective. Right, because we have that. him talking about U.S. arbitration, but most specifically Miami, because we are going to have other cities in the United States. But So that's why we really tried to focus this discussion on Miami. But before that, you are, uh, I'm looking forward to it, you are Discussing. summarizing my dissertation for me. <laughs> yeah, the layman's dissertation summary. Uh, we'll be talking about set-aside and challenge proceedings in the ICSID and non-ICSID context. It's a bit of a high-level discussion uh, because, of course, this could be a dissertation topic. But uh, we kind of... In fact, it is. It is, and it will be, and it is going to be. But we um, we really just touch on a few points to kind of give the readers an idea of what this dichotomy presents. And, and then for Happy Front Time, it's the pronunciation station. <laughs> Joel champions this very controversial topic of how to pronounce things in, in an international sphere. Okay, I think... We're ready to go with season two, episode three of the Arbitration Station. Okay, good. But is this is this exactly your dissertation topic? It's like half of my dissertation topic. My topic is non-exit arbitration generally, and then I go into a few like specific aspects of the difference between exit and all the other rules and this like the challenge stage is of course like the biggest difference i just yeah finished a draft chapter like 150 pages that i presented in in copenhagen when i met taylor for the 
interview on history. So I, I have this top of mind, and I'm really just looking forward to uh, to leaning back in my chair and and listen to to you destroy <laughs> something that I know very well. <laughs> no, actually, I uh, this is exciting because I just um, taught this past week at Uppsala University on the differences between exit and non-exit challenges to awards or setting aside of awards or annulment, and I. Um, got into really good discussions with the students and we reached some really interesting topics that I definitely want to get your musings on. So before oh, we, interesting. Before but we I, lay out the basics. I don't want any more input. I'm done with the draft. Please don't give me any new good ideas that oh. would force me to rewrite stuff. I'm sure this is at a way different level than what you're writing. But okay. we'll figure it out. Uh, so base, let's start with ICSID because it's just more structured and we can kind of get, get, dig our teeth into something that's real. Um, so basically you have an award through ICSID and the losing party can bring an annulment of the award. Um, but the ad hoc committee, so, and then it goes to an ad hoc committee. So you resubmit it to ICSID and then ICSID appoints three ad hoc committee members, which they do a really good job about getting more diversity in their panels on, the, on these committees than you would technically or necessarily right. see. Especially keeping in mind what we talked about before, that they are in this process restricted by the roster consisting of primarily of people nominated by states. So they cannot just choose widely of all the from all the arbitration right. people in the world. They have to, to choose people that have been nominated by states or uh, a small, small group of people nominated by ICSID itself. So that's why they have like more judges. Or they have yeah. some judges because they come from state appoint or state. And also younger people. There's been a lot of in the news now. Like there were two people in their lower forties were appointed on on an annulment committee just a few weeks ago, and they were both like among the youngest ever. So it's a good uh, segue into uh, heavy duty arbitration calls to to get into annulment uh, committees. Um, so and I it, it it's also good for younger lawyers to be on these type of committees because like most appeals in local jurisdictions these committee members can only determine specific things um, they only have the grounds outlined in the exit convention um, there's five of them so this is article 52.1 of the exit convention yeah. the first one is that the tribunal was not properly constituted that's 52.1a then the tribunal manifestly exceeded its powers the third one is that there's a serious departure from a fundamental rule of procedure. And the last one is that the award failed to state reasons on which it was based. My favorite one. Um, so the, the, and this is the same in like in US appeal processes is that it's usually based on a fundamental error in procedure. Um, and then you kind Meaning of- appeals in, in general civil litigation or when you challenge an award in the US, an arbitral award. A, a civil litigation. Hmm. Um, that you could only do certain, you know, object on procedural grounds that certain evidence was admitted that it shouldn't have been admitted. There was some sort of foul play on behalf of the judge. Those type of things that would, you know, be very mirror what's what's happening in the exit process. Um, but so the committee can only determine whether to annul the award in whole or in part, um, which and the effect of that is rendering the award null and void for all intents and purposes and canceling its res judicata effect or they can let the award stand. So the decision is, okay, we annul the award or they, or we don't annul the award and we confirm what the tribunal said. But when I say that they confirm what the tribunal said, I do not say, I'm not saying that they're discussing necessarily the merits of the case or they're not discussing the merits of the case because that's what makes it different from an appeal. 
um, they cannot substitute their own judgment on the merits for the decisions of the tribunal that have already taken place. They're basically either saying you screwed up or you didn't screw up. But they're not saying like you were right on this point and you were wrong on this point. It's it's more going into the procedure of what they actually did. And that's a really happy dance. I have to say it's a very it's it takes a lot of advocacy to kind of dig as deep as you can into the merits of the in the arbitration. If you're trying to annul the award, if you're not trying, if you're trying to defend the award, you just say, look at this paper, everything's fine. Uh, but if you're trying to annul the award, it's very clever how people can try to dig into the merits of the case by still keeping this surface argument of we're only talking about, you know, foul play on the behalf of the decision makers. Um, and if you don't, or if they choose not to annul the award, or no, sorry, if they do annul the award, then the dispute is resubmitted to a new tribunal. And that's why there's no res judicata effect, um, because it just goes back to a new tribunal. Do you know if it can go back to the same tribunal? Um, I mean, in theory, there's no obstacle, right. I guess, but I don't think the parties would be interested in doing so, right? Right. I think in all the like handful of cases where they resubmitted an annulled uh, award, there there have been new tribunals put in place. Right. Um, and then if we talk about, you know, what to what is really discussed in the annulment cases, it's really a focus on the award. I mean, the, the starting off point of every argument comes from, okay, this is what the tribunal said in the award. That's the starting point. And that's, then you know what the tribunal assessed as evidence and what they had uh, for witness statements. So there's really going to be no new arguments or new evidence presented to the annulment committee. However, there is some, you know, particularly expert evidence may be needed in the annulment proceedings to discuss or to enlighten the ad hoc committee on certain things that were discussed during the arbitration. And that's really case by case. It's kind of hard to include an example. Um, for example, in the Mikula case, there was a lot of discussion on EU law, a lot of discussion on the applicability of EU law before and after accession into the EU. You know, you have treaty obligations even prior to accession. What are the effect of those obligations? And an ad hoc committee member may need to look at the expert testimony presented in the arbitration. And if none existed, maybe would need some in the annulment case. Um, what, what, do you recall in what way this argument was framed? In, in the words of Article 52, was it a yes. manifest excess of power? it was a manifest excess of power for not ruling or not applying a applicable law. Okay, yeah. That's how it came up. <clears throat> um, Let me just, just take a break here. Now I have to change my snooze. Is it getting that boring? Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. Fr fresh one inserted. Good to go again. Okay. What Resume. kind of snooze do you take? Uh, I can't say it in English because it sounds like a, an illegal act. It's Gothenburg's uh, rape. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's rapé. You have to rapé. pronounce it in French, judging from last uh, happy fun time. <laughs> uh, so if we are going to look at these grounds a little bit more closely, um, do you have anything on you know just the general introduction so far? Uh, Am I doing okay? Yeah, yeah, I think you're doing okay. And remember, my expertise is not really on exit, but rather uh, the, all the other various jurisdictions you may end up in. So okay. yeah, I think you're doing fine so far. Are you, do you intend now to go through the, the different uh, 
just like very quickly, because then I yeah. really want to go to the non-ICSID, because I think everyone can read the convention and, you know, read the case Yeah, and, and then that, that, I think, should be emphasized, uh, especially for students. If there's any, like, one article you need to learn inside out if you're interested in ICSID advocacy, it's Article 52, because it's very common that you try to annul cases, and, and they all circle around Article 52, and the, like, relatively speaking, the limited jurisprudence that we have on Article 52. So it's, it's like, it's a, it's a doable, containable job of, like, learning one thing if you want to feel confident in one aspect of the exit process. Definitely. And, and it's very kind of clear cut. It, you, have, you have a very succinct rule in the convention. You have very impactful words. You know, you have manifest excess of power. Okay, what does manifest mean? What constitutes the excess? How do those two relate to each other? Um, because that, that was something interesting that was brought up in class is some we kind of got in the discussion of what does manifest mean? Is it the excess of power that has to be manifest? But is it an does manifest mean that the excess was obvious? Or was it a blatant excess of power? Yeah, that's I've had the similar, I had a very good and uh, um, how should I put this diplomatically? Um, a, a Russian student who was very good at asking critical questions. Mm -hmm. And oh. he, he, he uh, a few years back when I did this seminar, and he, he made the similar case, like, it's similar to your uh, very unique thing. <laughs> it's, he, he made the point that it's, it's, it's almost binary. It, if it's an excess of power, then it's an excess of power. And then you can see it. It's an excess of power. And that means it's manifest. Otherwise, you couldn't see it. So there's only excess of power or no excess of power. Right. And and if it's the former, of course, it's manifest because otherwise it's you, you wouldn't see it at all. So we had this whole I think it was like a half hour with <laughs> the rest of the class chiming in. <laughs> that's I mean, that's an interesting point. I mean, but then manifest would be rendered useless. But if. Um... Yeah, exactly. And that's not the point. And that's, I think, right. where you have to go on this, like looking at uh, at the discussion leading up to Article 52. It's there. Uh, to signify to lawyers that the standard is super high. Right. It's a very strong uh, qualifying word. And the, I mean, it kind of going along those lines is if you talk about jurisdiction, and that's what we really got into, um, that decisions of jurisdiction or jurisdictional awards, uh, how do those, can those be annulled? The answer is yes. When can they be annulled? Usually when it, when there's a final award that has been rendered. But then if you're talking about that comes under the manifest excess of power, and I think your Russian student would have a very interesting point there, because if the answer to do I have jurisdiction or not is yes or no question, then how does it become a manifest uh, excess of power when right. you're reviewing these decisions? Um, but I guess the point is that you should be able to just look at the decision, and it, it's obvious to like the, the average lawyer that there is an excess of power. Exactly. It's just clear. It's you see it immediately, and it's not something you would have to slowly reason your way to to reaching that conclusion. It should be manifest. Should be obvious. Which goes to the point because if you're discussing issues of jurisdiction, it's usually a, or it can be a legal discussion if it's not you know just you know investment or something like that. Because of course we have two in the exit context. You have two jurisdictions that you have to find right, like the jurisdiction mm -hmm. of the center, and then you have your arbitration agreement itself but i uh it's it's a bit interesting to me this whole issue of jurisdiction because you really have to get into these legal arguments and Good, you're, yeah. and then you just start unpacking and then by the end your suitcase is on the floor and all your clothes are on the floor um yeah. 
and that's what you really try to avoid. So that's where the manifest, I think, is kind of the safeguard. And as a defender of the award, that's kind of where your argument needs to be sitting is in that in that policy that this has to be, you know, basically A, to, A is B and B is C. And now I'm telling you A is F. That, yeah, that's yeah. really the the basis of that. This, I, maybe I'm jumping the gun because we haven't talked about the other grounds in the exit convention, but this particular provision in the exit convention is where you see a lot of interesting differences when you compare it to, to non-exit and how domestic courts in that context approach jurisdictional decisions by tribunals. Let's talk about it. What do you, okay. what do you, what do you got? <laughs> so basically, it's, it's established that in the exit context, you do not, as you said, you do not rehear the case again. So you're looking at what, what did the tribunal, uh, what kind of conclusion did they come to? And then you look at how did they get there, more or less. So that, but there's still, a, of course, there's a blurred line there because you can't really answer that question without going into the merits to a certain extent and actually right. analyze and review what they did. But in domestic courts, if we're talking about commercial arbitration, which is the framework really for all the domestic legis arbitri, all the, the various domestic laws that we have, none was you know drafted with investment arbitration in mind. So they were all drafted for commercial arbitration. And there, uh, typically, as you know, and our listeners would know, it's very hard to get an award set aside. And courts typically also refrain from reviewing what the tribunal did, and they look at these narrow grounds for setting aside. But there is one significant exception in many courts, and that is questions to jurisdiction, mm -hmm. where a lot of courts actually de novo review the jurisdictional question. Yeah, that's that's actually I think this is underappreciated, or at least that's my case in my dissertation, because in commercial cases this is typically not a big thing because you in in the the average commercial arbitration you don't have a lot of tricky jurisdictional questions. Uh, did the dispute arise out of or in connection with the contract, or you know were the parties that signed the contract actually mandated to sign the contract or stuff like that? But but as you as you hinted. In investment arbitration, you always have, like the big fight is over jurisdiction typically, because you have the definition of investor, the definition of investment, you may have a fork in the road clause, a cooling right. off period, you might have MFN arguments, trying to get more favorable jurisdiction. You always have, like almost by definition, you have a very interesting jurisdictional question, right. meaning also that you can challenge almost every investment award on the ground that the tribunal made a jurisdictional error. So if you're a little bit creative, you can always introduce a jurisdictional element to your challenge. That's true. And then you get into the position where domestic courts actually, most of them review this de novo based on this idea of uh, competence, competence, or competence de la competence, or competence, competence. <laughs> Confidence, confidence, confidence. <laughs> Which basically provides that the tribunal, of course, may rule on its own jurisdiction, but the final word on the tribunal's jurisdiction is always at the court, at the place of arbitration. Because by allowing arbitration, states are just giving up court jurisdiction. So they want to ensure that if they do so properly, basically, that the, the tribunal is not unduly exercising jurisdiction that would otherwise be for the domestic courts. Right. So this is the framework for most domestic courts. So I, I've been going over a lot of court cases where basically you, you get a second bite at the apple on jurisdiction. You can. That's why uh, Gary Warren was at the Svea Court of Appeal in this uh, Kazakhstan case that we talked about last season, because you just you do everything over again. Right. And you, you argue over the tribunal's jurisdiction. And they're typically the courts in this context, they don't even refer to what the tribunal's 
did or say. They just you know do it all over. They interpret the treaty and they hear new evidence and all that. So you and get a, apply, a, I mean, they apply just to back it up a little bit. They're applying their their arbitration act or their legislation that relates to arbitration. Correct. Right. Right. And At then, least uh, seemingly that's what they're doing, but it's hard right. to do that if the question is what does investment mean in the bilateral investment treaty between two other states? Exactly. So, Swedish law doesn't really help you that much. It takes you, you nowhere. To, yeah, exactly. You would have to interpret the treaty and basically act as if you were an international court or just, you know, like a tribunal. Right. And then so they're applying standards. I mean, it's a huge thing in the U.S. when you're discussing issues, what legal standard is to I mean, it's, uh, of course, internationally, but what legal standard to be applied and which type of scrutiny and deferential treatment you're going to give to the previous tribunal and then their analysis. But if if the standard you're going to apply is a de novo review, then I mean, basically, yeah, you're like nothing is to be considered from the previous case. But it's not always the case that a jurisdiction will have de novo review. I think that's the most extreme. But what are the standards yeah. to be applied? Um, it's completely unknown. And maybe we should start asking everyone in the series of arbitration. <laughs> not that they would know, but or not that. It's yeah, but maybe, maybe they would. I mean, that's a good point as well. And it goes to this point for the umpteenth time that the place of arbitration matters. Definitely. You were, and in, once again, there's a difference between commercial and investment here, because in commercial cases, uh, you would know this, of course. You're aware of these factors when you draft your contracts. Uh, savvy international arbitration lawyers, uh, ideally, at least in the best of, of uh, worlds, they advise their clients and they draft contracts based on research. Like, we know about this jurisdiction and its court practice. But in the treaty cases, the treaty states never designate the place of arbitration. Right. So you don't have typically the opportunity as counsel to influence the choice of court. You could, uh, in theory, uh, agree as the disputing parties in an, in an investment case, but that almost never happens. So it's either the tribunal or the administering institution instead designates the place of arbitration. Uh, and I, I don't know really you know, how educated this designation typically is, how, how, what factors go into it. Right. It's, I mean, I... It hadn't really occurred to me until I was, you know, prepping for this class that it is such an untouched issue and not really discussed, especially when in investment arbitration, like exactly like you said, where jurisdictional objections are being raised left, right and center. And knowing that it's such an easy, challengeable ground, why is this not being discussed more? Enter Joel. Yeah. Oh, thank you. You're, you're selling my dissertation. That's not even halfway <laughs> completed. <laughs> No, I, I, I found it really fascinating and I found, I mean, you off, ne you do not often stumble upon areas of law that are, people are still shooting fish in a barrel. Um, you have some sort of groundwork to lay. And, you know, you have, you know, each arbitration act does have their, you know, grounds that they can decide. But if you look at the model law, I mean, those grounds are entirely vague. Um, yeah, way more vague than, the, of course, than the exit annulment grounds. So I'm you're you're really and working also, with nothing. In, in the exit case, once again, you also have access to all the exit annulment awards that have been in the past, and they are all ruling on Article 52. So you have this jurisprudence, and if you're in the district court in, in the Hague or in Singapore or in Toronto, it's not necessarily the case. You 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 may have a lot of commercial arbitration jurisprudence from the court in question. But once again, it might be different when the the jurisdiction you're challenging is based on a treaty. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the same kind of guidance 
that you do in the exit context, which is not necessarily a bad thing, of course, but I think you need to be aware that it's a different universe. Right. Yeah, I think we we should again emphasize that these set-asides in the courts could be commercial or investment. I mean, it's not just, I mean, we're comparing it to ICSID just because there's different grounds there, but the set-aside things we were talking about can also be applied to commercial as well as investment. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. That's But that's sort of a separate discussion, I think. Yeah. Another thing, I don't know if you know this, I haven't looked into it that much, but I get the impression that the the ground in in Article 52 of the Exit Convention that you have to provide reasons for your decision uh, does not exist in most domestic contexts. I don't think that's a ground. It's not in the model law, and it's not in the like the few jurisdictions no. that I know that are non-model law that I know. So I mean, you could probably try to frame it as some sort of excessive mandate anyway. But this this explicit ground that you can challenge an award if the tribunal did not give reasons for its decision does not exist in in domestic set aside or challenge in domestic court. Right. So to round this up, I mean, I think we can talk about a little bit of reform, whether you think that we're in the right place that we should be in the arbitration community. If you think about an ad hoc committee, for example, hearing, you know, you have a respondent state, if you take Spain or Argentina earlier, you have multiple proceedings based off similar facts that could potentially be annulled on similar grounds on awards that were discussing very similar things. And then you have ad hoc committees that will come down with completely separate results. Um, So if you're talking about arbitration being predictable and fair and, um, and all well and good, you have a real risk there. So do you yeah, this one, it's still the, the SEMPRA versus Argentina is still on on the seminar that you just taught. Yes. Right? The exit case, which sort of blew up uh, eight years ago or so when it came out. And they were accused of basically exercising appeals functions and really exactly. reviewing the, the, the merits of what the tribunal did. And I guess this is uh, within the mandate of what's now being done in the exit context, looking at whether or not they should do some sort of reform to to the annulment. Yeah, there's been some talk about ICSID trying to, or they should, you know, not that ICSID themselves have disclosed this, but some people have commented saying that they should try to mirror the WTO appellate body instead of having the ICSID committees. Yeah, and that's also, of course, on the table or might be on the table, depending on where the states end up in the uncentral context in this more multilateral effort to create something from from scratch. Right. You might get a, a whole new appellate body for investment cases. And then in that discussion, of course, there, there's a lot of interesting conclusions to be drawn from from both current exit and current non-exit jurisprudence. Right. Sounds like a real headache, if you ask me. Yeah. And then just to add on this headache, we have this ticking bomb that is the UCOS challenge currently going through the Dutch courts, which is, you know, famously, of course, the biggest investment award ever, mm-hmm. which is now slowly grinding its way through the, the Dutch legal system. And I think once we do have a final uh, court decision as to whether this award stands or not, we will have another platform for discussing against because it's such a huge case that the the whole world of arbitration is paying attention to. Yeah, I, w- I do not envy their position. <laughs> My God. 
Um, all right. Well, well it's another thing. Oh, okay, sorry. No, 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 no. Uh, I'm just. This is. You know, we should just lock the doors when I start talking about things that have interest in them. People kind of go away. But one thing that I'm not really touching upon because that's sort of legal sociology, and that's the the competence question, not in the in the legal sense uh, whether courts are are legally competent and have the jurisdiction to rule on this, but rather do they have the skills? That's something that uh, a more oh, yeah. more social science person should look into because I'm not convinced. I've been surprised when I've been going over that the court pre- decisions that many courts are relatively sophisticated, but it's not always the case. And I don't, I don't think, you know, do we really want three Dutch judges who normally do criminal law to rule on treaty interpretation questions on the ECT and the biggest award ever? Not exactly. so sure that most arbitration practitioners would really ideally be comfortable with that situation. I don't know. In Costa Rica, for example, the case goes to a specific international arbitration chamber of their Supreme Court. Oh, yeah, that, I think this is pretty common. They have it in different uh, different uh, iterations in different jurisdictions. This is also something we might we might have reasons to uh, to uh, revisit once we talk to more people from all Definitely. around the world. No, but I agree. I mean, you're this whole psych- this psychological question of whether these people are competent to decide on these cases is is extremely relevant and it spans over all types of things including you know interim measures and you just have judges that are bringing their their own you know their own jurisdictions biases to how to decide the case whether or not they sit and do you know a real thorough interpretation of the treaty and know the case law um you are still dealing with um you know, biases or predisposed notions on certain principles that may may not be the case if, you know, the reason why you didn't want to go to court in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And on this note, also a homework for listeners is to read the BG Group versus Argentina case in the U.S. Supreme Court, which is the biggest set aside so far, not in terms of money, but in terms of the attention it got, because it's the only challenge of an investment award that's gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's just one big mess of a case <laughs> rendered by the you know, supposedly the most gifted judges in the U.S., possibly in the world. Uh, and it's they, they just screwed that up, both the majority and the dissent, in, in different ways. It, very interesting reading. Perfect. Ready to rock, ready to rock. You guys haven't actually met, have you? No. I've met your colleague Diego at the FDI moot in Boston this year. Oh, no way. That's, yeah, we... you know, that's, that's cool. I was supposed to go, but um, I had a client thing and I couldn't, at the last second, I couldn't make it. My brother was there, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you sat for any rounds with the team from Suffolk University from Boston. But the, he, the host he goes team. To Suffolk. Oh, he goes to Suffolk. Okay, no, no, no. Yeah. I, I did not. I, no, I only, I only arbitrated two rounds, so I, I didn't see a lot of teams. Uh, okay, cool. <clears throat> It'd been really funny if you met my brother and not me. Yeah. He's <laughs> 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 in the smallest possible world. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for doing this and for taking the time, uh, especially no in the morning. No, no worries, man. No big deal. Ten o'clock here. We're we're. We're in, we're in full force. <laughs> we, but just so you know, we're actually in different locations, Brian and me. Maybe you can tell from, from the microphone level. So we are not in the same room either. 
Yeah, um, I listened to your last your year interview, and so I think that what Brian, you're in Sweden. Yeah, I'm in Stockholm. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, and Joel, you're in the UK. Right. You see, I did listen. <laughs> Good, you're prepared for the the onslaught <laughs> of questions. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> No, but I mean, we would. I we were just like doing a, a brief research going into this, and it's. I had no idea about this new. I guess you could call it a reform for this new court, uh, the International Court of Arbitration in one of your district courts. Yeah, actually, it's. Um, it would be in the state judicial district, so okay. not the federal. But yeah, it, it's the eleventh um, judicial district. Or 13, 11th, which is Miami Dade. I see. And I can, sorry, can we just do a 101? I know you guys are both uh, JDs trained in the American Law School, but for the rookies among us, how, how does this even work in, in a federation where you have one arbitration act that's federal and one arbitration act that's at the state level and you're arbitrating with the place of arbitration, in, in this example, in Miami, in Florida? Mm-hmm. What's the relationship between the state and, and, the, and the federal in this uh, particular example? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'll I'll start, and then and Brian, you can correct me if, if I'm wrong, or just jump in. Um, so if you're have an arbitration in Miami, the Federal Arbitration Act will um, normally apply. And that's because it is has been interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court to basically preempt any state statute or to override or supersede any state statute that's contrary to the Federal Arbitration Act and its policies. Um, now, that being said, uh, the, the the parties can always opt out of the Federal Arbitration Act. They're not required to follow it. And all they, of it, or is there some sort of you know mandatory stuff that you cannot opt out of? Or so apparently you can. It's it's a not incredibly clear, but what you can do is you can completely opt out of the FAA as long as you don't, in the process, opt in to some kind of state law that would be directly contrary, right? Oh, okay. I see. You see, it, it kind of gets a little circular, but you could do that. You cannot modify the FAA. So that's that's the big decision that was in Hall Street Associates versus uh, Mattel. And so you can't add grounds of review. You can't add grounds of appeal to the FAA. But the parties could decide that they want to only apply, for example the Florida International Arbitration Act to the exclusion of the FAA, and you would most likely get only the Florida International Arbitration Act. So so it's a little bit complicated, but that's... And that's that's very very helpful. This, I mean, U.S. law has, of course, been annoying civil lawyers everywhere for for centuries, (laughs) because nothing is clearly provided in the act, and you have to, like, know four different court cases in four different right. courts in order to just get right. the basics. Okay, yeah. we're good. Thanks for this. Now we know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Moving back to the to this court that, that has been introduced that Ryan mentioned. 
Yeah, sure. So uh, what that is, is that is a, it's like a section within the state courts here. And, and, and that means that there are two judges who will receive certain cases when they are filed in, in state court. So it doesn't mean that there's an actual separate court or a separate courthouse or just one person who all they do are these international arbitration issues. It's really just a division of labor within the state judiciary. And what they are going to analyze are issues that relate to international arbitration when, where the parties so select. The, the practical consideration you face is that that is not, that really doesn't include that many kinds of cases. And that goes back to where we started, and that is that the Federal Arbitration Act preempts state law, uh, where it is in any way contradictory, both in the language and the policy. So for the most part, uh, those uh, decisions are, are going to end up going into uh, federal court. And that also stems from the fact that almost every international arbitration is somehow going to be uh, within the jurisdiction of the federal courts, and one of the parties will most likely want to go to federal court and get a U.S. district judge as opposed to a Florida state judge. But if for whatever reason somebody forgets to do that, uh, somebody decides to go to state court, or you are in a situation that you would end up in state court, then you do have two judges who have been trained in international arbitration issues that should be there to make sure that things are um, decided in a way that fits best practices. So would it be fair to say, at least as of now, that this is mostly uh, a marketing exercise, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which well, it sounds so. like? Yeah, I don't think so. And I'll, I'll tell you why. Um, you have issues of interim remedies that go to state court. Right. Especially if you're going to look to things that might go to a third party, you would definitely have it in state court. You could have situations where uh, you have two foreign parties and neither of them is in the United States. And there are ways that that matter can end up in state court. So I think it is more of a backstop than a marketing play. Interesting. <clears throat> but the, And these judges you mentioned have to be mm -hmm. trained. What is this training that they receive and who gives well, this training? <laughs> and is there a market for, for foreign lawyers to train them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, so, so anyways, I, I, I'll tell you the, the anecdotal story of the first time the training occurred. And that, or that we learned of the training, let's say. And that is at uh, ICA in 2000 and gosh, what was that now? 14? Yeah, 14? Yeah, yeah. In 2014 in Miami, uh, the, these two judges came up in front of the entire group at a plenary session and uh, informed everyone that they had been pulsonized, as in <laughs> had taken a class from, a number of classes from Jan Paulson on, on international arbitration uh, through the University of Miami. So is there a market for foreign lawyers? Absolutely. That's yeah, because so he is in fact Swedish. That's right. <laughs> there you go. You see, <laughs> he went to high school right near my high school. Actually, I found out. Oh, so, in California. Wow. It's a, in <laughs> California, so it's a small world. But on that on that note, that's actually a good segment because oh segue because he is still right the head of the LLM program, right? So, or maybe you don't know this. Well, 
Well, let, well, let's 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 talk about um, LLM programs and there there is what what the what is happening at University of Miami. So I am an alum, University of Miami, and there is an LLM program, and there is an arbitration institute. The two work together, but they are actually um, they actually pursue uh, slightly different goals. So the LLM program is looking to find and recruit LLM students to bring them to Miami and to help to give them certain courses to prepare them for both their LLM and the future, whatever they want to do. Whereas the Institute pursues uh, a broader uh, set of research programs and other activities that would not fall within the LLM program. Now, I believe that Jan sits in a position where he's kind of uh, over both of those different elements but they are actually uh, technically separate within the University of Miami structure. Gotcha. It sounds like the, the combination of the two would be a good, uh, you know, a good key feature of any arbitration center or community to have uh, both research and teaching at an international level in the city. Yeah, I think so. And I think that you, we have benefited from that, you know, just the, the range of students that come to Miami to study. And How many stay? Really grown. I, I know. I realize that's hard to quantify, but do, do, you, do you know anecdotally of people who go do the LLM in Miami and then end up staying in Miami? Have you had like interns or, or trainees at your firm, for example? Yes. So we've had interns and trainees from the LLM program. Uh, I do know that some have stayed in Miami. Uh, the the one. A barrier that you have to staying in Florida is that you have to have a Florida bar, and for most for most law firms, and to get the Florida bar, you have to have a JD. To get a JD, you have to do one year extra on your LLM. All right. So, what some students do is they come, they do the LLM, and they say, you know what, I want to go back. I want to go to New York. I want to go to wherever, and so they go. Uh, those that want to stay in Florida or who want a JD can stay for one extra year, at which point they can sit for the Florida bar, sit for almost any bar actually. And But that's how you would, that's your pathway to stay in Florida and work at a, a firm that's normally based in Florida. Couldn't you, in theory at least, uh, provided there was enough work, uh, work in Florida in international arbitration only without actually passing the, the Florida bar? Or is that not even? Yes, but in theory. So if you did work in investment arbitration, absolutely. Uh, there is, of course, no requirement to be a lawyer in investment arbitration. In a tree, in a tree panel, zero. You could just be uh, anybody, teacher. Uh, so you don't need it for that. The one thing you would need to do is you would need to be certified as a foreign legal consultant in Florida, and that's just a process where. Uh, the Florida Bar recognizes that you are licensed in a different jurisdiction and can provide advice on the law of that jurisdiction. It doesn't really apply to international arbitration, to tell you the truth, but it is a requirement that the Florida Bar has followed. I don't want to say imposed, in case they're listening. Uh, <laughs> they listening. Yeah. Because I'm asking partly because you have some colleagues who, are, who don't have JDs at your firm and are still practicing primarily arbitration out of out of Miami. You got it. That's why they're all foreign legal consultants. 
cool. That's a Got sexy it. title. <laughs> <laughs> but how much of your caseload is arbitration versus litigation? Um, personally, probably about like 85% arbitration and then 15% litigation. That's great because my like my biggest or my most common answer to people asking why I don't move back to the states is the fact that I say when you go into a firm, you'll get maybe 10% of arbitration cases and the rest will be litigation and I just don't want to risk that. But it seems mm. like you're living the opposite tale, which is nice to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there are definitely firms that have very strong and active arbitration practices. I, Brent, I, I agree with you that that's, uh, there are many firms that will have an arbitration practice that is a collection of people that have the occasional arbitration but largely go to court. And in Florida, in Miami, there are some firms like that. And then there are some firms who do largely international arbitration. So us, Hogan and Levels, here in town, they have a very robust arbitration group. Uh, Reed Smith does. Um, there are other firms that have, you know, will have associates that spend most of their time in in arbitration. Baker McKenzie. Who else? There's, would there's, there, sorry, would you say there's enough people to have like a, a lecture followed by a cocktail in international arbitration and still justify the the expense because you you, you would get enough people. I mean, outside of the ICA in 2014, where obviously you had a lot of other people coming in, but on a regular basis, is there is there enough of a critical mass of international arbitration people to to keep that kind of community activities up? Yes, there are. And we have we have lectures and cocktails. We have just cocktails. And we have lectures and lame cocktails. Uh, we have the whole gambit of various different uh, activities, and you tend to get a pretty good turnout. The only time you won't get a great turnout is if you have something that's very student oriented and and then it, it turned out kind of kind of dies kind of dies now right. yeah that's a universal phenomenon though i think right. <laughs> yeah yeah and how many of your cases that you get are domestic arbitrations versus international arbitrations uh, we get very few if any I, I if i think of a domestic arbitration that i've done it's probably been eight years oh wow okay so it's mostly yeah. international arbitration Yes, yes, yes. Here, here in Florida, there are some domestic arbitrations in construction, for example. You'll see them. You might see them in some real estate development kinds of contracts that are not purely construction. Right. But for the most part, that's where domestic arbitrations go. And so if you're in that field, then you do it. So if you were to look for Florida arbitration lawyers, uh, you'll find a lot of folks that do construction and, and they have uh, domestic arbitrations. There's also a decent amount of cruise ship arbitrations. So all the cruise companies, surprise, surprise, if you want to cruise. Yeah. So if you, if you go on a cruise out of Miami, Lauderdale, which is a lot of people, you are going to agree to arbitration and your <laughs> claims will be heard in Miami most likely or some other city far from Miami. And if you work on a cruise ship, your claim will definitely be heard in arbitration. That's so funny. Yeah, partly. I mean, this will not be allowed in most other jurisdictions. I mean, right? that type of dispute as a as an employee with your employer or as a consumer, those are not arbitrable in most places. Yeah. It's it's very very fascinating. But it, the, uh, so so you you don't see that many domestic cases, but I know for a fact that you and your firm have a lot of uh, 
Latin American related cases. So that's right. what, one of the reasons we're talking to you in addition to you just being a, a pleasure to talk to generally. But in, in that sense, you are uh, a good reflection of, of what Miami seems to uh, aspire to become, which is the, the hub for Latin American disputes that are seated outside of Latin America. Uh, so um, first, thanks for the compliment. And, and yes, we are, that's our goal. The only thing that I would add to that, Joel, is that we don't do cases only in Latin America. We do have cases outside of Latin America. And, and to me, that's the next step for arbitration in Miami. Is because that, when you say we, you don't mean specifically just your firm, but also the, the Miami world more widely. Right, right. So I mean specifically my firm and the broader arbitration community. I know that the folks at Jones Day have worked on some of the Kazakhstan matters. Um, the who else do I know? I, I, I've heard that the Reed Smith folks work on some Australian matters. We have some matters in South Asia. So that 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 really is the next step for us, and and where we're looking to, to take things probably in the next five to 10 years. But still, would you, or how crucial would you say that knowledge of Spanish, for example, is if you're looking to make yourself a career in the Miami arbitration world? I think it is important, but it becomes less important every day. Really? That's the exact opposite of the general tendency yeah. in the United States. I know. It is a, it's something that if you talk to, let's say, the lifers here in Miami, many of them will note the increasing emergence of English in Miami. So there is definitely a, an old business community here that runs on Spanish. There is definitely a, a world of deals that are done in Spanish, disputes that are handled only in Spanish. But at the same time, you see more and more cases and more and more people who have middling Spanish, let's say, or none, who are doing just fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> didn't mean to, to uh, poke a, a, a sore spot. <laughs> <laughs> What is the Another, what is the competing institution now? So you're saying, you know, we're trying to attract all this business. Where do you think that business would come from? Would it be coming from a Latin American institution or would it be just pulling from the bigger institutions in Europe? Um, well, so in that sense, it's not institutional driven, I would say, because we're not there is no real arbitration. Um, nothing that administers claims that's in Miami is anyhow in any way distinct from any other place, except for the amount of case managers you have here. So really where things are pulling would be in the sense that the, let's say, pathways of business are changing. Right. So a, a Chinese company investing in Latin America might be, and sometimes is, and there are cases, more drawn to Miami as a seat than they would be New York. Is that, where, where, where does that come from? Well, that's just the, the changing nature of trade. Right. So you'll see things like that. Uh, if you see things between Latin America and other places in the world that maybe are not 
traditional hubs, let's say, you know, if it's a if it's a, a matter between an entity in the UK and Latin America, maybe in the past that would be in London, and maybe now it would come to Miami, and all those things to me are largely a function of the strength of the bargaining position between the parties, and then their comfort with going to their places. In how many, in percentage points, how how uh, often do people instantly comment on the weather when you mention that you're from Miami and you work in Miami? Ow! <laughs> oh, I so you know that tends to fluctuate by season. In the winter, ninety-five <laughs> percent. <95%. laughs> right. Oh, you must have so many just dumb speech parts now on the weather in Miami because it, it hits you everywhere you go. We interviewed yeah. someone, or I interviewed someone from Costa Rica, and he's and as a as a selling point for the San Jose arbitration community. He said that um, the proximity to beaches would be something that he would say would be a selling point. <laughs> yeah, I you know, but if you think about it, uh, um, of course, I mean the weather is gorgeous, right? And I try to talk about it, especially in the winter, because people just get kind of bitter. <laughs> but any, any place that is that really aspires to uh, be a hub of any kind of economic activity has to have some kind of outlet to do things besides in a conference room all day. So, you know, maybe in New York, you can go to Broadway or maybe in Miami, you can go to South Beach. And in Stockholm, you can <laughs> go to the ice bar hotel and get colder. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I mentioned this or, or told you this before, Quinn, that I, I could never work in that environment. I, I can't understand how you get things done, but maybe that's just some sort of DNA as a Swede. As soon as you see the sun, you just drop whatever you have in front of you and you it's socially accepted not to work because you're biologically programmed to enjoy the sun. Otherwise, you'll, <laughs> you won't make it. I, I, I very much prefer a five degree Celsius uh, rainy day to a, to a Miami day, any day of the week. But then lies. I'm not there. The... <laughs> <All lies. laughs> right. So, do you have any more questions, Brian? Because uh, I, I think I've run out of mine. I just have an open ended question. I mean, we know that the FAA has some quirks in it that are unique to the U.S. As far as you know, that's that will be the fa. The f- ah, yeah. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and then the longest acronym is the Florida uh, Arbitration Act. Yeah, actually, there's a, a longer one. I, I found it. There's a, a re- revised Florida Arbitration Act. So the Rafika, the, the, R- 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 the <laughs> Africa. Rola. They just go to Africa. <laughs> um, but is there something in you know Miami court or Miami procedure that you would say would be like? a unique, um, unexpected aspect of practicing arbitration that you would not find in even other states of the United States? Yeah, Uh, sure. So the one thing that I would say is the most unexpected is that the courts in Florida, especially the federal courts, are very receptive to applications for discovery in aid of arbitration. And the 11th Circuit has some of the most permissive jurisprudence on that topic. 
And if you look at uh, other circuits, Second Circuit, DC Circuit, etc., there looks like there is some hesitation. Eleventh Circuit, you're good to go. So you know, <laughs> they give you the fishing I, pole. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're very fast too in deciding on these things. So there are there are ways for creative lawyers to to get documents and depositions and interrogatories in aid of international arbitration or ancillary proceedings that might relate to arbitration. And that's for the very clever. Right. I think it is a great point. Um, We've dealt with some things at our firm for um, accessing documents abroad through the Hague Convention. And we have requests, and I myself am an American lawyer, but we get requests from American law firms that are just, you know, these broad requests, and we we have to spend a couple of sessions teaching them what it means to limit the scope of their request because it's just so mm. natural to us to just throw in the kitchen sink. Um, yeah, I, I I love it because you you narrow your request for a federal court, and if you were to compare it to an arbitration request, it's just a different world. <laughs> yeah, it's so broad. So I would say that that's the most surprising thing. Uh, there are ways to find out when people are flying through Miami on holiday and serve them with a subpoena for deposition in aid of a foreign proceeding. Wow. That would be fun, right? Yeah. That's a rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> You've been served. <laughs> so all this time you're in Miami and you hear uh, Mr. Would it Mr. Joel Dawkins please come to the third floor? There's an important message for you. Don't go. <laughs> good. Very, very good advice. Sound advice for our listeners. That's so. I'm funny. not your attorney, but I am saying don't go. <laughs> I think Joel's going to be the process server. That's his uh, retirement plan. Yeah, but I will never go to Florida. Though. It's way too sunny for my taste. I'll have to do it in northern Canada. But that's, that's why it's perfect here. You can just work whenever you feel like it. Right. <laughs> Sweet gig. <laughs> well, I'm I'm good. This has been a very enlightening, even for, you know, an American looking back. It's been really interesting. So thank you for taking the time. No, no worries, guys. Thank you for, for reaching out. Uh, congrats on the show. Um, I've listened to a few episodes, enjoyed it. So all the best. Keep it up. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> All right. All right, Joel, convince me. You got 20 minutes. Convince me. That we should do a segment on the pronunciation station? The pronunciation station. Yeah, the, um, this is not the only thing. I'm really on a mission to trivialize here. I have uh, so many suggestions for happy fun time that Brian keeps shooting down because he thinks it's silly and not uh, not uh, dignified enough for this uh, super sophisticated podcast. Super sophisticated. <laughs> and the best form for pronunciation, uh, or really for pronouncing people's names specifically, is one of these things that Brian thinks we should not do. So I, I'm going to make my case of why I think this is worthy of a 15 minutes musing uh, between the two of us. Because I was actually uh, at the conference here in London, or I'm in Cambridge, but I'm counting Cambridge as Greater London, where we ended up talking about this, me and a few other people, because at 
every conference, and it's the same in hearings and basically every international arbitration context when there's more than four people in the room, there's at least one person whose name you know, like on paper, but you can't really pronounce it because it's strange or it's in a foreign language. Right. And then there seems to be no agreed on protocol as to how to approach the pronunciation. And if you're a moderator, for example, introducing a dignified, super established speaker, it's a big thing. And even more so if you are referring to opposing counsel in front of a tribunal or if you're teaching or, you know, any other of these like elevated instances where you're supposed to uh, observe best practice, there is none for pronouncing people's names. And especially, you know, when you have people whose names don't really work well in like an anglicized version. Like every so, Icelandic name. Yeah, exactly. Or, or uh, Asian names, East Asian names, many right. of them as well. Or were you not really even sure sometimes from a Western uh, standpoint, what is actually the first name and what is the last name? It's not always super clear. Or two first names or two last names. Yeah, like I have two last names. Are you supposed to use them both? I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know and you're supposed <laughs> to be writing to me. But mine, I, I, so it's easy to talk from your own perspective. This is a non-issue for you. Maybe that's why you don't care, because your name is already in the lingua franca of international arbitration. So you've never had this experience. But I've given up on on trying to get people to pronounce my name in Swedish, because there's not, you know, not a single person outside of Sweden, apart from a few uh, post-colonial Finnish people who speak Swedish. And I, it's not important to me. I don't care if you say Joel, 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 Joel. It, it, I don't care. It does, it does not provoke me if you can't pronounce it because I'm not asking people to, to learn Swedish in order to get the perfect pronunciation of my first name. Does, but I'm not sure. Does the pronunciation the of Kohlberg, would that provoke you? No. No? I, 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 I really don't give one fuck about how my name is pronounced. I, I come to terms with the fact that I have a Swedish name and I'm working in the international environment. Right. So it's never going to happen. And my sense is that most people who do not have uh, names that go flawlessly into the English language have the same approach. But I'm not sure that is the case because sometimes I get the impression that people are a little bit annoyed when their names are being mispronounced. So I don't know. It, let me ask you this. Is it... Or you expected to ask people how to pronounce their names if you're know that if you know that you're about to pronounce them in a public setting of course that's a best practice it is okay but then what if you screwed up anyway which is is more likely than not then you're bad at your job of being a moderator <laughs> <laughs> if you go around and be like hey excuse me how do you pronounce your name and he goes jan van den Betty, and then you say okay thank you jan vandenberg is here with us that's your fault <laughs> Okay, but that happens all the time. Or maybe people just don't ask they for don't the ask. pronunciation before they do it. The Dutch people are a good example. And we are exhibit A here because we've already botched a, a number of Dutch names. It, you can't pronounce most Dutch names. That's just a fact of life. Right. Are you still obliged to try to do it in Dutch with like a, from the University of Groningen, we have Utrecht. <laughs> 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 or is it just accepted to like simplify it into a, a, a generic, strange English pronunciation? Well, see, that's what, that's what I, th that's what I do actually, is that I, I give an old nod, but I don't go all the way because then you just sound like you're trying too hard. Uh, even like something in French, you know, even if you can say something in French, you don't say like Louis Vuitton, 
because you don't speak French. So stop trying to act like you do. Even if you do, I mean, we're all international here. You're speaking English. You don't need to like immediately jump and put on your like Jean-Paul Gaultier hat and then like try to speak French. So I think you can give a little nod and say, like, you know, like you don't have to say Louis Vuitton, but you can like say, you know, Louis Vuitton. Oh, this is like the American approach. Just show that you're trying. And <laughs> but like Jan Vandenberg, I, what is it? What would it be? My point exactly. Vandenberg. Vandenberg. Vandenberg, probably. Oh, that was good. Uh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Says the guy who knows nothing. Of like Dutch. vowels. Vowels, I think you need to internationalize. You yeah. can't give your flat A the, the main stage on a French or German name, for example. That's true. That's true. But the, maybe this is not so much an international arbitration, which is more like egalitarian and, and universalized, but in, in like hardcore international or general international and academic settings, there still seems to be this prestige that we should all at least understand and ideally also speak German, French and Spanish and hopefully a few other languages as well. So I've seen a lot of like professors still insisting on in, in strange contexts uh, pronouncing foreign or uh, to them foreign names in the language that they're supposed to be. And I, I don't have the, the competence to judge whether it works out or not, but it, it, it's, it just seems a bit fictional and, you know, over the top to me. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, OK, well, what approach do you take when you say your own name? Do you just slip into like complete Swedish? That's how, that's actually how I started to think about this for the for the first time because I've always just gone with an anglicized, anglified version of Joel Dahlquist Kohlberg, like like an American hockey commentator. I grew up with like Peter Forsberg and all these big Swedish right. hockey players being pronounced and by like a Canadian guy. Right. So that's sort of accepted. But then a while ago, I realized I don't have to do that because it's still. I'm Swedish and I'm happy to be Swedish, or at least my name I can say with some maintained dignity of, of national pride. Right. Uh, so now I've turned into Joel Dahlqvist Kullborg. Oh, you just, just went all the way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, there are only two ways. <laughs> right. Or in Swedish, there's only one way. So, like, I have this, I have a friend from Iceland. Her name is Rory, but her real name is Ragnhildr. And if you say it with a perfect Icelandic accent it sounds like okay <laughs> so I think there's has to be and we had this because we competed in the vis together and we had this discussion on um, Rory we we love you we love that you're Icelandic but you know it immediately creates a conversation oh wait, well, what was that oh yeah how do you yeah. spell okay where are you from I mean you're just inviting becomes an obstacle exactly so why not grease the wheels a little bit you're yeah this is this is the reason along the, the lines of, of Anthea Roberts is international law international. Uh, we have a lot of Chinese students at the master's program in Uppsala and uh, it's common practice, of course, for many uh, Chinese uh, people when they go to the West to sort of adopt a westernized name because they want to avoid the whole thing with people trying to pronounce their, right. their Chinese name. So they, they go from like something strange to something super plain like Steve or Ryan or Kate. Just to, to make it I love easier, it. I love it. and then because this is there's a guy in Stockholm that you know as well, Will Langren, who's he yeah. uh, American and and English, who speaks Mandarin, and he met one of my students. I think it's the first time I met Will, and since he speaks Mandarin, I think he insists on using their 
their Chinese names when he addresses them, both uh, to them directly and when we speak of people. So he has access to the Chinese names that I don't because I just go mm -hmm. with the westernized versions. And I can't help but feel that that makes me a little bit inferior, that he he actually knows their, their real names and can pronounce them. Yeah. And I have to go with Steve just well, because I'm know, stupid enough not to understand the, the <laughs> Well, I mean, Chinese is a tonal language, so you could be saying something like, go eat a box, and instead of <laughs> calling them Anita, you know, or whatever their name would be. Yeah, that's true. That's so true. But I would, I would want to be the guy who, who, you know, could do it properly, just to demonstrate my universal aspirations. So I'll see you in China then. Yeah. <laughs> It, it feels like I convinced you that this could actually be on air as a Happy Fun Time segment. I, th I think there's something to, I've thought about it myself, of course, and I think people will like to talk about this, so it is considered a Happy Fun Time topic. I just <laughs> wanted to elevate it to a level where we don't just sound like we're sitting across from each other at the dinner table in our okay. own personal discussions. My next uh, step in the mission to to trivialize is to talk about dress codes. I think that's maybe a, a bigger bigger uphill battle to fight, but I will I will take the fight no, happily. No, 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 I, that that's a good one. That's a okay. good one. Okay. So uh, watch this space for an interesting discussion on dress codes in international. Right. <laughs> and as a teaser, Google Miami lawyer <laughs> <laughs> because they wear some crazy stuff in the courtroom in Miami. Yeah, I remember you telling me when I went on a vacation to, to the deep south of America and I asked what to pack. And you were like, there's no way you can be underdressed. Just, or was, no. uh, yeah. or was it the other way? Um, there's no uh, way that you're going to be underdressed. in the south. Yeah, exactly. Just like take the, the ugly shit you have. Like your workout clothes are yeah. tuxedos in, in most of southern America. So just They'll still go with the most special thing you can find. I could see you running out, like running outside with, you know, gym shorts that go above the knee or above the calf even. And they'd be like, whoa, seen a tailor recently, huh? <laughs> All right. right. Um, uh, tweet at us at the Arb Station uh, on Twitter and please send us emails at the arbitration station at gmail.com. And that's it, I guess. That's it. All right. Till next time.